We've made it to Luke chapter 9. Still in Luke chapter 9. And we're going to look at verse, start at verse 28 today. Again, it's going to feel like musical chairs, up, down, up, down, but uh, we love to stand for, for God's word, so please stand. If uh, you have a blue Bible, it's found on page 841. And these are the very words of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, just cracks me up, about eight days, like eight days is either eight days or it's not eight days, but what does eight symbolize in, in the Bible? New beginning, first day of a new week. Right? So it's just a little hint of, of what's to follow. After about eight days, Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him, and they went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And Peter and his companions were sleepy and... (laughs) Sleepy? Are you kidding me? It's a little foreshadowing of what's to come in Gethsemane. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. But while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. And the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Rabbi, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. The spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I beg your disciples to drive it out, and they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long will I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. This is his word. You can be seated. Well, what we just uh, read is what's called the transfiguration. In fact, if there's one event in the life of Jesus that I could have witnessed, I think this would be the one. And this whole event uh, starts with where it says, and they went up a mountain. Scholars have a really good idea of what mountain this is because they've just been in Caesarea Philippi, and Caesarea Philippi is at the base of Mount Hermon. And I have a picture of that for you. I don't know how well you can see it, but you have to look closely because this is taken from the Sea of Galilee, and we're looking north, and if you see in, through the haze, the white, because Hermon is the granddaddy of, of mountains in Israel. The highest hills in Israel are about 
3,500 feet. This goes over 9,000 feet. And it's about 25 miles north, and right at the base of Mount Hermon is Caesarea Philippi, where Peter just declared, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's right after that that they go up a high mountain. Um, Let me just say, in, in the ancient world, mountains were considered holy places, because the holy places were high places, and the high places were holy places. And uh, this was often the place where people would go to a mountain to meet with God, because to meet with God, you had to go up, you, you, you aliyah. And when you look even at the biblical story, you see the role that mountains play. I mean, God is constantly coming down onto mountains, and the people are going up the mountain to meet with God. Even in the Gospels, and it's here in our text today, how often does it read that Jesus went up a mountain to pray? Now, Mount Hermon, as, as you could see, is, is, is the granddaddy of mountains. It's, it's a holy place. In the biblical story, it is a it's always seen as a holy place. Um, it, it, it also, these mountains, especially when there was a spring associated with them or a, a, a little stream coming out of them, that, that especially made it a holy place because Eden, I mean, the first holy place, had four rivers coming out of it. The temple in Jerusalem had, had its river, Gihon, Maim Kaim, coming out of it. Well, the river that flows out of Hermon is what? Jordan River. It's the source of the Jordan River. And when those snow caps melt, that water literally goes into the whole land of Israel. That's why the Bible calls it the Dew of Hermon. And it's here, I think, that Jesus is transfigured. What does that mean, transfigured? In the Greek, it's the word metamorphosis. The text says his appearance completely changed. He became brilliant. It says his clothes were were white like lightning. His face, according to Mark's account of this, says it shone like the sun. Verse 30 tells us two men joined Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Look at the detail of verse 31. They too appear in stunning glory. Now to a Jew, who are Moses and Elijah? Two greatest men who ever walked the face of the earth. I mean, this is, this is their Mount Rushmore. Moses is the one who, who God uses to free them from bondage. He's the one who mediates the covenant. He's the one who officiates the marriage between God and Israel. And it's through Moses that... That, that God's people get God's words, Torah. Elijah was considered to be the prophet of all prophets. He's the one who, who is also going to come again and prepare the way for Messiah. In fact, does anybody know the text in the Old Testament that includes Messiah, Elijah, and Moses? Anybody? I find this to be really cool. Because it's the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi 4. Malachi 4 is the equivalent of our Revelation 21 and 22. It's the great day of the Lord. When God is going to come once again, he's going to deal with with, with evil once and for all. He's going to vindicate the people of God. And he's going to make everything right. And I know you want to see it right now. I mean, you don't want to just hear about it. Go to Malachi 4. 
And in my Bible, just look at that. Last chapter of the Old Testament and then New Testament on the other page. And in verse 4, it says, remember my servant Moses, the Torah, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. And see, I will also send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He's going to make it right between children and their, fa- and children and their kids and kids and their parents. Hmm. And then look at verse 2. And for those who revere my name, the son of righteousness, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. That's Messiah. And now here they all, all three are again in our text today. Moses, Elijah, Messiah. And what are they talking about? Well, they're talking about Jesus' departure. And I, I don't know why, but this just this moves me to think about because um, in the text previous to this, Jesus is now telling his disciples about his imminent suffering and death. It's, it's obviously on his mind. And, and, and he's got his face soon thereafter, too, set on Jerusalem for, for the task that's before him. Uh, but as he's approaching this, here comes Moses and Elijah. Elijah, talk about this. Come on, man. You can do it. Keep going. You're almost there. And then the disciples, I don't know how they fell asleep during this whole thing, but they do. And then they wake up, and and when they wake up, they take this all in, and, and it says, they saw his glory. Now, for me, it's, it's, it's not that hard for me to imagine what the disciples are thinking. I mean, first of all, in light of um, their, their cultural situation, I mean, all of Israel at this time is despairing. They're living under this Roman oppression. They're paying taxes to a pagan king who's building his pagan empire. They're watching fathers and mothers and sometimes sons and daughters even being crucified. And they're just longing, they're waiting for this great day of the Lord. When God once again sets his feet on his holy mountain and puts his king in charge. I mean, for you Baptists, this may be the equivalent of the, of the rapture. I mean, uh, any Baptists here? I didn't offend anyone with that, did I? Okay. Um, but they're talking about Jesus' departure in the original language. Does anybody know what the word is? Exodus. Exodus is a Greek word. Because to a Jew, gospel is exodus. Gospel is God rescuing a people from the dominion of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light. That's exodus to them. That's why Peter looks at this and says, this is good. Because Peter has a sense of of, of what's going on. Moses, tick. Elijah, tick. Messiah, tick. All three are here. The great day of the Lord is upon us. Now, this is where you and I need to know some things about Exodus, the first Exodus. What happens when God leads his people out of Egypt? Meets them. 
They get out of Egypt. They find themselves in the desert, and God meets them in the desert. And how does he appear to them? A cloud. It's called the glory cloud. And that glory cloud is going to go before them and and, and lead them through the Red Sea. And then it's going to shepherd them. Uh, all the way to Mount Sinai. And that glory cloud, which is a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, is going to shepherd them for 40 years while they're in the desert. That's why I never say they didn't wander in the desert. They were led in the desert. And then the glory cloud, is it's going to settle on Mount Sinai, and God's going to invite all Israel up into that cloud. But the people say, no! We're scared! That's too terrifying. Moses, you go up for us. So Moses goes up. He meets with God in the cloud. God speaks to him in the cloud. This is where Moses gets the Torah, the five books of Moses. Um, Eventually, too, after the big marriage between Israel and God uh, for a reception, God's going to invite the 70 elders up the mountain and into the cloud. And when they're in the cloud... It says something crazy. They see him. And what do they see? His feet. What do you mean? There's feet in this cloud? And then you look at the language really closely as it describes the cloud throughout Exodus. And it says the cloud walked before them. It walks. There's another time where the cloud runs behind them to get between the people in Egypt. It walks. It runs. It stands. It, it's almost saying there's a person inside this cloud. What happens after this? After the 70 elders go up? This is all in Exodus 19 through 24. What's the next chapter? 25, duh. <laughs> What happens in Exodus 25? God says, build me what? A tabernacle. Build me a tabernacle because I don't want to be up here. I want to be down there in the center of the camp. I want my tent and your tents all around it because I want to walk with you. I want to dwell with you. And the whole rest of Exodus is about tabernacle. What does Peter say when he sees all of this? Build, let's build a tabernacle. And why is he saying this? I mean, we just think Peter's so dumb and stupid. No, he knows his text. Because that's what happens next. When God comes in all his glory and settles down on the mountain again, we build a tabernacle. I don't know. I don't know if... This is the first time where Peter is now really starting to see Jesus for who he is. He just declared him to be Messiah. But is he now actually thinking, oh my goodness. I never expected the Messiah to be the same one who is within the cloud who led our forefathers before. I I, I never thought that his feet... The feet who I sit at are the same feet that the 70 elders saw up on Sinai. Here's what you need to know. As a first century Jew, Peter knows that God's Shekinah presence is an awesome, awesome thing. 
that one can't just stand in the presence of a holy God without a tabernacle, without a priest who's making sacrifices, who makes us clean and presentable so we can go in. And I was thinking about this this week. You know, we live on, on this side of Jesus and this side of the cross. And, and what a blessing it is. But sometimes I think we can just get so comfortable with Jesus almost to the point where we're flippant with Jesus. And I know Hebrews 4 makes it very clear that we can just boldly approach him. But ask yourself, why is this? It's not because God has become less holy and therefore we no longer need a priest or a sacrifice. We still need a tabernacle, but the fact is, is that Jesus is a tabernacle. And we still need a priest, but Jesus is the priest to end all priests. And we still need a sacrifice, but Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. That's why we can come in. Why he can come in. Jesus is the means to God, and Jesus is God. And see, this is who Peter, James, and John are beholding. It's like in this moment, Jesus just took off his human mask. He takes off the veil. And for the first time, they see Jesus in all his glory. In fact, they're looking at the one whom Colossians 1 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God cannot be seen, but when we see him, it's Jesus. For in Jesus, says Colossians, all things are created, things in heaven and on earth. Think about that. Things invisible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. And in Jesus, everything holds together. That's Jesus. The one through whom the whole universe was made. The one who fashioned the stars and put the galaxies in place and knows every star by name. But here's the deal. When Jesus came to the world, the Bible says he gave up his glory. As Philippians 2 says, he didn't hang on to his God God qualities, but he became nothing. He was made in human likeness. And I think sometimes we get so comfortable with that. The Jesus that we encounter in the Gospels is a, is a Jesus who's so humble and so human and so earthy and so approachable. And, and so as we encounter him there, we must never forget who Jesus is. It's the creator and the ruler of the universe in human flesh. And what we also, I think, need to know is Jesus did not just wait until the the New Testament to show up because Jesus is all over the biblical story. And sometimes he's veiled when he shows up to Abraham's tent as just this ordinary stranger or when he uh, one night shows up to Jacob and and they wrestle. In fact, it even says that Jacob is overpowering this, this guy. He just shows up sometimes like a guy. But other times he shows up without his veil on. Like Isaiah, when he says, I saw the Lord. And the train of his robe filled the temple. 
that John's gospel says, the one who Isaiah beheld, this is in John 12, verse 41, was Jesus, the Christ. And see, then we get to the New Testament, and, and, and for the most part, his glory is veiled. I mean, we see a baby, and then a child, and then a man, and he's, he, he's so approachable. But then there are a few times, I think, in the New Testament where Jesus just takes his veil off. One of those times is in John 18, when they come to arrest him. And, and it says a whole cohort of soldiers. A cohort is, is, is 600 Roman soldiers coming to arrest Jesus. And it's like he just flexes for a moment. Bing! They see his glory. All 600 of them do what? Fall face down. They didn't arrest Jesus. Jesus arrested them. <laughs> Paul, on his way, way to Damascus, when he encounters Christ, he's blinded. Falls face down to the ground. For three days, can't see. Or John, John, who was, who was so comfortable with Jesus. I mean, so comfortable, he said he used to put his head on Jesus' bosom, right on his chest as they were having a meal. He'd just rest it there. It's so cool to me. But in Revelation 1, when, when, when you read John's description of the Christ in all his glory, without his veil on, he said, I saw him. And I fell down like a dead man. And now the disciples in today's text, it's like for this moment, Jesus removes his veil. And they, like everybody else, all they can do is fall face down. When's the last time you've been face down? When's the last time your heart's been face down? Is this the Jesus you know? Is this the Jesus you pray to? Is this the Jesus you worship? Is this the Jesus you follow? Because he is the king, I tell you. And he's not just a king of, for Christians. He is the king and lord and ruler of the entire universe. And the Bible says someday we will all come face to face with Jesus without his veil and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In fact, even these descriptions in the text where, where he doesn't have his veil on, where we see him in all his glory, I think there's still just but a taste of, 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 of who he is. Because of what we read at the beginning of the service, which I love because I didn't even talk to Greg about having you read Revelation 22. That in the new heavens and the new earth, we're not going to have any need for a son because his face will be the sun. So the next time you go outside and you see the sun, it might be 10 days from now. I don't know. <laughs> Look at it. I want to cause you to think about the glory of Christ. Look at verse 34. The glory cloud shows up again. It envelops James, Peter, and John, and they're just like Israel before them. They're, they're utterly terrified. And I don't want to beat this thing too hard, but I, again, I think living on this side of Jesus, we forget what a traumatic thing it is for those who encounter God's glorious presence. I mean, Moses' reaction in Exodus 3, 
when he sees the angel of the Lord in that, in, the, in that bush, he's in utter terror. He covers his face and he falls to the ground. Hagar in Genesis, uh, it says when God appears to her, she gives him a name. The name that she gives him is, I saw the Lord and yet my life was spared. Joshua in Joshua 5 encounters one who calls himself the commander of the armies of the Lord. It's a very interesting encounter, but Joshua too is terrified, and all he can do is fall face down. Gideon has the same kind of encounter uh, with, with, with the presence of God, and the same response in Judges 6. Isaiah, which I already mentioned, when he comes into the presence of the Lord, he says, I saw the Lord seated high and exalted. And he said, woe is me. Dead man. To this word glory in Hebrew, it's the word kavod. Kavod most literally means weight because that's what God's glory does. It's this weight that crushes us. Or think about Moses when he, when he goes up the mountain, when he's enveloped in the cloud, he gets gutsy with God one day. He's been with them and he's, he's to the point now where he can ask things of them like, God, I, I want to see your face. Show me your face. God says, I can't show you my glory. You see my face and it'll kill you. Now look at verse 32 in light of all this. It says, they saw his glory. They saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. And guess what? They didn't die. Does that shock you? I do it all the time. It's so cool. That's happening right now. Does it shock you that they didn't die? See, I want to be part of a church that knows God, that knows Christ so well that when we read a text like this, we're left asking the question, why didn't they die? Because our view of Christ is so high and exalted that we're like, they didn't die. And today I, I just feel more and more like Christians have such a low view of Christ. And I don't know if it's because of this narcissistic need we have for these warm, fuzzy experiences and these feel-good moments that, that we become so buddy-buddy with Jesus. And so we approach him sometimes casually, almost flippantly. This is not the Christ of the Bible. The Christ of the book is High and exalted, majestic, face down, terror. And so the question we should be asking right now is, well, why did the disciples not die? God's voice out of the cloud, I think, answers that question. Look at verse 35.
And while Peter was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. They're back in the cloud again, the glory cloud. And they're hearing God's voice. And they're actually seeing God's face in Christ, something Moses even couldn't see. In fact, this, this, this word from, these words from God, God himself, I think is the greatest remez in the Bible. Now, remez is, is the word used for it today. Um, back then, it didn't have this label, but it was something that Jesus is doing all the time. It's something that Paul is doing all the time. Remez is a rabbinical teaching technique that allows a teacher to bring sometimes large chunks of Scripture through a single clause or even sometimes a single word. And to do that, to play this game, because that's a little bit what it was, uh, it, it assumes that both the teacher and the audience knows the text so well. That if I just say, our Father, we know what? Lord's Prayer. Or stuff from, from scripts that are familiar to us, let the force be with you. My wife said, uh, tell them this. Just say it's blue and black. (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) She was right. See, and, and the, the way the, 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 rap, the, the reason rabbis would, would, would do this is they'd throw these clauses out almost like puzzle pieces. And therefore, it's the hearer's job, first of all, to identify the puzzle piece, to know what chunk of scripture he's referring to, and then to connect those puzzle pieces together so you can see the picture of what the teacher is trying to teach. And therefore, it's not what the teacher knows, but it's what you just learned for yourself. First puzzle piece, this is my son. Where is that from? <sighs> I can't, I mean, I, guys, listen. I am not trying to, like, make anyone feel bad right now, okay? But that comes from a chunk of scripture that was the most messianic text of the day. And it's the text most quoted by, by the New Testament authors to talk about Jesus. We have to know it. Psalm 2. I think I got it on PowerPoint. Wow, my phone's going off now too. Do we have PowerPoint? Oh, here we go. I know you can't read it, can you? Read it today. Why do the nations conspire? Why do they stand against the Lord and his Christ saying, let us break their chains? Boy, not much is different. The world and the rulers are still against the Lord and his Christ. But the Lord just laughs at them scoffs at them, rebukes them as anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've put my king on my holy hill. And here's the Lord's decree about that. He said to me, you are my son, my son. Today I become your father. Ask of me, and the nations will be your inheritance. It's messianic. Second puzzle piece. My chosen one. Does anybody know where that's taken from? This one's harder. Hey, good, Isaiah 42. (laughs) 
You know what I love about this one? If you think I'm grasping and just making things up, Matthew actually doesn't have, in his account of what God says, it's not my chosen one, but it's in whom I delight. You put those together, and there's your clause. Here's my servant who I uphold, my, my chosen servant. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Isaiah 42 begins this whole mysterious section that goes all the way through 52 and then 53 about this, this mysterious servant who's going to come, and somehow he's going to bring justice to the world, God's justice. But he's going to do it through suffering. Look at how it ends. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And just as many who are appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured behind, beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. And then it goes into Isaiah 53 and speaks specifically about the suffering of the servant. Third piece. Listen to him. Where's that from? It's Deuteronomy 18. God says through Moses to his people, one day there will be no Moses, but I'm going to raise up another Moses, and I am going to put my words in his mouth, and he is going to explain my word to you, and you will listen to him. Fourth piece. Luke doesn't include this one, but trust me, it's there, because Peter, who's an eyewitness of this, uh, includes this in 2 Peter verse 1, where he describes this event. My son whom I love. This clause, son whom I love, comes right out of Genesis 22. Abraham, take your son whom you love, your beloved son, and offer him as a sacrifice. Now listen, when you start understanding what these puzzle pieces are, and you put these puzzle pieces together, you start to understand that God is declaring that Jesus is a king who's going to reign over the whole world. And this king is God's very own son. And this king is going to restore the world and bring justice to the earth by being a servant. And the servant is going to suffer. And what's the suffering going to look like? And who's going to do it? God the Father is going to offer the Son as a sacrifice. And this explains why the disciples didn't die. Why the glory of God in the face of Christ didn't crush them. Because God foresaw a day when he would take his Son up a different mountain And lay him on an altar in God's perfect justice and holiness would come down and it would crush the sun instead of us. Romans 8 says, God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for his all. And why did God not spare his own son? Why did God give up his own son? Because in not sparing his own son, we're spared. Which is why we can say today, my eyes have seen the king and yet my life is spared. And we know that the salvation that God came to bring in Jesus is so much more than just having our lives spared. But he came to this world to fix everything that is broken and to bring shalom to the chaos and to make everything new. It's new creation. 
And we see the brokenness of our world in the next story. Because Jesus and his disciples, after they have this wonderful mountaintop experience, and of course the disciples want to stay up there, Jesus says, nope, I didn't come for this mountain. we got to go down there. And immediately, they're in the chaos. And we know that chaos. Because this is our world. The world is broken. We live in a sea of chaos. Listen to this chaos of this father. Look at verses 38 and 39. A man in the crowd called out, Rabbi, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And a spirit seizes him, and suddenly he screams, and it throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth, and it scarcely ever leaves him. It's destroying him. Please, Jesus. I'm a father. I have two sons. I have a daughter. And I know something, I can speak for every parent here right now, that when our children struggle, when they're, when they're in pain, it, it kills us. And usually they get more of our emotional energy and, and even our affections when, when, when they're going through hard times and when, we're, when they're struggling because our hearts go out to them and we so badly want to help them. And that's where this father is. His son is demonized, seizures, foaming at the mouth. And yet this dad is utterly helpless to help him. And see, I don't think it's any coincidence that this story is placed alongside the transfiguration. Because here is Jesus. Jesus, in his mind, knows. He knows that to ultimately change and redeem and restore and and, and make right a world that's broken and messed up, it's not going to be through him being transfigured. It's going to be through his suffering and death. That's why he just told his disciples. He He doesn't say, I will suffer and die. He says, I must suffer and die. Because Jesus came to the world not to be transfigured, but to be disfigured, as Isaiah 52 says. To be crucified. He didn't come for for the mountain that he just came down. He came for another mountain. Which is why, in a few verses later, he's going to set his face like flint on that mountain. And here he's caught between these two mountains, the Mount of Transfiguration and the Mount of Crucifixion. And this is the choice for Jesus. It's it's the temptation. Peter's right. I I want us to see this. It, It is good to be up on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is especially true of Jesus. Because here he gets to stand between Moses and Elijah. And here he, we, we see him in all his beauty and his glory with his face shining like the sun where his clothes are dazzling white. Here he's enveloped by the love of his father. Where he hears his father say, Jesus, you are my son whom I delight. I love you. Jesus came to this world to be a servant. And to enter the world's chaos and the world's brokenness so that eventually all of it, all of it could be heaped upon him. Because this is how God, through his Christ, is going to fix a broken world. How he's going to heal all the chaos. How he's going to redeem broken lives. How he's going to reconcile lost 
people back into the love of the Father. I want us to see that temptation. And I want you to just think about the mountain that he has set his face like flint upon. On, on that mountain, instead of standing between Moses and Elijah, he's going to be placed between two criminals. Instead of glory and his face shining like the sun, he's going to be so disgusting and disfigured that men are literally going to have to hide their faces. Instead of dazzling white clothes, he's going to be stripped, naked, exposed, body beaten and bloody. And instead of being enveloped by the love of the Father that he's known throughout all eternity, he's going to be utterly abandoned to the point where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at verse 42. While the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion, but Jesus rebuked the impure spirit. He healed the boy. He gave him back to his father. The reason why this father got his son back that day, and what an amazing thing that must have been, it's, it's the same reason why we're going to get our lives back. It's because Jesus set his face like flint on another mountain, and he did it. He said, it's finished. I did it. And because Christ went to the cross, I want us to know the hope we have today as we live in the brokenness, as we live in the chaos, that one day God is going to restore everything that we've lost, our bodies, our lives, our loved ones, restored, returned, perfected, and beautified. It's going to be given all back to us. As Gandalf says in Lord of the Rings, Everything that is sad that has happened will come untrue. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, one of these great verses, one of these that, that, that roots us in the hope, it says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. Listen, that's happening right now for those of us who are in Christ. We're being transformed. Into his glory. You know how this happens in a person's life? It happens because Christ first invites us to come to him. And Christ invites us to meet him, not at the, at the Mount of Terror, the Mount of Transfiguration, but he comes and invites us from the Mount of Crucifixion where he's utterly humiliated and weak. And here's where we come to him. And we, and we come to him like the dad in the story. This dad gave Jesus two things. And I want us to see this. First, he gave Jesus his helplessness because that's all he could give to Jesus. And it's all that we can give to Jesus. So many people today think that they have to give Jesus their holiness, that they have to muster up all these things. See, Jesus, what I've done now and see how good I am and, and, and see how good I can perform for you. And Jesus is just saying, you don't have to give me your holiness. Just give me your helplessness. And see, it's when we give him our helplessness that our lives are changed. And second, the father not only gave him his helplessness, but he also gives to Jesus what's most precious to him, his son. Just like Abraham in the Old Testament who offered up Isaac, 
he hands over to Jesus what's most precious to him. And see, this is how we come to the Lord of the universe who gave everything for us. It's not that we trust ourselves in our good works, but we completely come to him helpless, trusting him in all that he's done for us. And we entrust what's most precious to us, and we give it over to him. And that's how he exchanges our helplessness. Think about this, for his holiness. How he takes our uncleanness and exchanges it for his wholeness. How he takes all of our moral and spiritual ugliness and exchanges it for all his beauty and glory. And right now, as we trust him this way, more and more we will reflect the Lord's glory. We will be transformed into his likeness with the hope that one day, think about this, First John verse 3 says that when Christ again appears and we see him, We'll be like him. Look at Moses. Look at Elijah in this text. They are stunningly glorious. And so will we. Let's pray. God, open the eyes of our heart to see you, Jesus, in all your glory. If it causes people this morning literally to bow face down, let it be. It's probably the most appropriate thing we could do. And God, I just pray that we would come to you today with all our helplessness, trusting you. And God, that we would identify the things that are most precious to us and that we'd give them to you. We'd give them to you. We'd We'd entrust them to you. Thank you, God, that you are changing us and conforming us into the image of your son with the hope one day we'll be like him, like him.